Good morning, morning, family of God. I just want to invite everybody to take a deep breath. Breathe in for a second, breathe out, and uh, rest in this truth this morning. God loves you. You are saved. And you will be safe and secure in the love of God throughout your life. Now today, we're talking about a theme, which I'm going to tell it to you right now, and then we'll explore it for the rest of our time together in this sermon. And the theme is this, healthy rhythms for a lifetime of fruitfulness. We're talking about healthy rhythms for a lifetime of fruitfulness. And I want to emphasize right now that word, lifetime. Everybody say, lifetime. As a pastor and as a preacher of God's word, my goal is your lifetime fruitfulness. As church leaders, our goal is not, let's get as many people as possible in the service this Sunday. That would be a shallow goal. And if we live for that week after week, that would be a shallow, frantic life. Our goal is to be disciples of Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus so that over the course of not just days and weeks and months, but years and decades and generations, we can bear spiritual fruit for the glory of God. Now, I want to invite you to do a thing for a second. Before we go any further, I want to invite you to close your eyes and just imagine... Um, who you want to be in your 70s. If you're already there, just go ahead and imagine your 80s. Imagine who you want to be in your 70s. And, and when I say imagine who you want to be, I want you to think in deep biblical terms, right? What, what do you want your character to be? What do you want your relationship with God to be like in your 70s? What kind of spiritual impact on the life of others do you want to be having in your 70s? You might even make this a prayer. Holy Spirit, show me what kind of person do you want to form me into? So that 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years from now, however far away it is for you, you can be that kind of a spiritually healthy, fruitful, mature, fruit-bearing individual. You got that picture in your mind? Okay, you can open your eyes. I want you to keep it there the whole time. Here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again so that you could be forgiven. You could be adopted in the family of God so you don't have to fear judgment, so you can have the hope of eternal life, and so that you can become that person you just visualized. Although probably God's version is going to be better than whatever you just imagined, right? He desires you to bear spiritual fruit in old age. He desires you to finish your life Well, some of us may not live to old age, but he has a purpose for all of us to finish our life bearing fruit for his glory. As a matter of fact, while we were sitting there singing, I just felt like the Lord brought to mind a couple of scriptures that aren't in my notes. But I felt like since the Holy Spirit brought them to mind, I might just share them with you anyway. That's all right. If you've got a Bible, I encourage you to flip over to Isaiah chapter 46. I felt like the Lord brought this text to my mind for us this morning. Verses 3 and 4, God's giving a reminder and a promise to the children of Israel 
And before I start reading, I'll remind you that our New Testament teaches that if we've trusted in Jesus, we're children of Abraham. We've been grafted into that covenant community of Israel, which means these promises to the children of Israel are promises to us. They're our promise. And look at Isaiah 46. I'm going to read to you verses 3 and 4. The Lord God says this. Listen to me, descendants of Jacob, all you who remain in Israel. So everybody say, that's us. Because we're spiritual descendants of Abraham. And it goes on to say this. God says, I have cared for you since you were born. Yes, I carried you before you were born. Somebody think back over your life. Hasn't God taken good care of you throughout your life? Walk with you through the good times and the hard times. Now listen to the promise. I will be your God throughout your lifetime. Until your hair is white with age. I made you and I will care for you. I will carry you along. And save you. God loves you. He wants to walk with you throughout the years and decades of your life. He wants you to bear fruit. The other scripture that was coming to my mind while we were singing earlier is Psalm 138, 8, which just says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. God will fulfill his purpose for you, child of God, because his love never fails. Now, I told you a second ago, sermon title is Healthy Rhythms for a Lifetime of Fruitfulness. Let's say that together. Everybody say, Healthy Rhythms for a Lifetime of Fruitfulness. I want to start by focusing on the last part of that phrase, a lifetime of fruitfulness. And that's what the verses in your, uh, in your bulletin are talking about. They're talking about the reality that spiritual fruitfulness is not something that works fast. Something that plays out over a period of time. Look with me again at the verses that are in your bulletin that were read to you a moment ago. First, we've got a couple of short parables by Jesus. This is Jesus talking. Matthew chapter 13. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. And then down in 33, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which is yeast. Okay. He compares God's kingdom to a mustard seed and to yeast. So these parables are answering the question, how is God's power, his reign and authority going to break into the world to heal the world? What is that going to look like? He says it's like a mustard seed. He says it's like yeast. And he goes on to unpack that metaphor in these parables. He says the mustard seed is the smallest seed of all the garden seeds that people would have planted in their garden in this time and in this place. It's a little bitty seed, starts really small, and then when you put it into the ground, you come out and look at it the next day, guess what's happened? Nothing. At least that you can see. And if you watch what happens, you know, come out every six hours for the next year. Most of the time, you're not going to be able to perceive any difference because it starts small And it grows slowly, often imperceptibly from a human vantage point. But then over time, this seed in the ground germinates, it grows roots, shoots up a little sprout, and it grows and grows. And it can become a bush that can really become, under the best conditions, like a tree that's 8 to 10 feet tall, taller than the other garden plants. So that it's one of the few garden plants that birds are going to come live in it from, you know, talking about the gardens in this time and in this place. 
What's the point of the parable? When God comes with power to heal the world and to make things new, he comes in a way that's surprising. Often it starts small. It grows with a powerful life of its own, but it's often slow and even imperceptible to us. But over time, it becomes huge and has a massive impact. Or like yeast through a batch of dough. If you know anything about making bread, if you want your bread to rise and be fluffy, you need yeast. You just put a little bit in, kind of knead it, work it into the dough, and then all you do is wait. Just wait. Everybody say, wait for the Lord. And over time, that yeast spreads through the batch of dough. And the whole thing becomes leavened. And then, as a matter of fact, you can take a little pinch of that dough and take it over to the next unleavened batch of dough and cause it to rise. And it can keep spreading and spreading and spreading and spreading. Jesus is saying, what I'm doing right now is starting small. I've got 12 disciples. We're a little ragtag gang. Whenever people are telling me to do publicity stunts, I'm refusing It's starting small. Jesus knows he's about to be crucified and look like a failure. But then he knows he's going to rise from the grave. And he knows he's going to pour out the Holy Spirit. And this little small movement is going to spread such that a few years later, there will be thousands of followers of Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit throughout the Roman Empire. And now 2,000 years later, there's billions of people that name the name of Jesus on every continent in the planet. Start small and it spreads. But this happens also at a smaller scale in our lives. Listen, if there's somebody here today who came to church because you're spiritually hungry and you're not right with God and you're living in sin. But today, as you hear my voice, you trust in Jesus Christ. You recognize Jesus died on the cross for my sin and rose again and you trust in him. Then God will do something new in your life right now. Today, you will be born again. You'll have new life and forgiveness from God. But then you'll wake up tomorrow and you know what will happen. You'll face the same temptations you did yesterday. And over time, if you start following Jesus and reading your Bible and praying and coming to church and doing the sort of Christian things, you may feel really excited. And then you may start to get discouraged and feel like, I don't see any growth happening. What's, I thought my life was supposed to be different now. And what you need to hear is this. It starts small. And it grows and spreads, often slowly, often imperceptibly. You can't see it, but it's happening But over time, it has a transformative effect. What about the gospel in our city? What about the gospel in South Oklahoma City, in this neighborhood? If if I ask my question, how is our outreach ministry going over the last six months? Often I feel discouraged because we're doing all sorts of work. It's like, where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? But then if I ask, what has God done over the last 10 years? It's always encouraging. Because every day we're planting, every day we're watering, and often we can't see any fruit, but over time... God brings the growth. It takes time. Start small. Same principles are at work in our other text. Galatians 6, 8 through 9 is talking about sowing and reaping, planting seeds and then picking fruit. The sowing and reaping principle in Scripture involves the fact that there's often a significant time lapse, a delay between today's decisions And the fruit of those decisions, which might come years from now. So we reap what we sow. And then verse 8 in Galatians 6, it's in your bulletin, says, The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. If you sow evil, sinful choices, death comes. That's what that means. 
Then it says, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. If you make small decisions today to sow love, to sow prayer, to sow hope, to sow humble servants, to sow obedience, then over time it brings life, the life of God. So verse 9 then says, let us not grow weary of doing good. Everybody say doing good. Little small decisions every day to honor the Lord, to serve people, to bless people, to do what's right. Don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The in due season is key. It means the time for eating the fruit of today's decision is later. There's a delay. But it says if you persevere in good choices over the course of a lifetime and then beyond death, you reap eternal life. Last text that was in your bulletin is Luke chapter 8, verse 15. This is the very end of Jesus' explanation of the parable of the four soils. Do you remember this parable? We're not going to read the whole thing. I'll summarize it for you really quick. Jesus says, the farmer goes out and scatters seed, and the seed represents the word of God. The word of God is always powerful, like seed. It has the life of God in it. But then Jesus says, the word of God, like seed, lands in many types of hearts. And what type of heart we have is like different kinds of soil. Some of us have hard hearts. We may be here today hearing the word of God, but we've already planned to disobey God later. There's no intention to yield to God's word. And Jesus warns for those kind of people, the enemy just comes and takes that word right away and it never bears any fruit. Others of us here, we may be excited today to worship God. We love the ideas of what we're hearing about, but we don't really want to do the work of letting that word shape our character for the rest of this week. So it never grows deep roots like seed that lands on shallow ground. Some people, the seed of the word begins to grow in their lives, but it gets choked by the busyness of life, by work, by career, by the pursuit of money, by all of our stresses. And it never bears fruit. And then there's the last seed that lands on good soil and grows. And Jesus describes it here in verse 15. For that in good soil, they are those who hearing the word, hold it fast. Or you could translate that, cling tight to it. When you hear God speak through the Bible, Cling to it. Cling to it. Hold it. Not with your hands, but with your heart. It says, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. That just means I have a heart that says, God, whatever you say is what I want. Help me. I want to trust whatever you promise. I want to do whatever you command. I want to understand and believe and live in the light of your word. And then it says they bear fruit with patience. That's the key word. Everybody say patience. All of these texts of Scripture are saying to us the good work God wants to do in our lives and the good work that God wants to do through our lives in our community and in the world. Often it starts small, then it begins to grow and spread, often slowly, sometimes imperceptibly. We have to learn how to be faithful as we wait on the Lord. But over the course of days and weeks and months and years and decades and generations, God's word always bears good fruit. It always bears good fruit. So these verses are causing us to think today about the question. If in my 70s or 80s, if you're already in your 80s, you can just imagine the 90s, okay? If at the end of my life, I'm going to be that spiritually mature person 
who's a person of deep prayer, who's full of the Holy Spirit, a person of faith and love, who has a legacy of spiritual generations coming after me, of people who are walking with God, who's lived a life filled with mercy and generosity and compassion and justice. If I want to be that person when I'm at the end, the home stretch of my journey, what choices do I need to make today? What seeds do I need to plant this week in order to eat that fruit 30 years down the road? That's the question I want you to think about. To switch the metaphor here, Paul talks about the Christian life as a race. He talks about running the race. And my point here is the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a long-term race. In our culture, we tend to be addicted to movement. We want to go where there's movement. We tend to be addicted to fast results. We say, that took forever to get my food if I have to sit there for 15 minutes, right? We tend to be addicted to fast results. That's why we're all going on fad diets instead of choosing healthy lifestyles, right? Okay? We're addicted, addicted to fast results. We're addicted to immediate gratification. Whatever form that may come. We want things to be flashy and exciting. And we bring that cultural bias into our Christian experience We tend to think if it's flashy and exciting, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But if it's slow and steady and stationary, that must be the absence of the Holy Spirit. That's the way we think. That's not true. As a matter of fact, I think the Spirit of God is speaking to us through the Scriptures today. And God is calling us to learn the spirituality of the slow and the stationary. Stay in the same spot until you have roots. Wait for the Lord. Be faithful. Stand firm. The way I used to talk about it with some of our college students years ago, some of you all remember this, we we talked about if you go watch a firework display, that's exciting, it's fun, it's loud, but fireworks can't keep you cold in the winter, can't keep you warm in the winter, can they? In the winter, you need hot coals. We tend to think of Spiritual maturity being like fireworks, but spiritual maturity is like hot coals. Coals burning hot that God can use to bring life and warmth over time. We need to learn to wait for the Lord. We need to learn to be still and to be silent. We need to learn to plant something today that we hope to reap 20 years from now in our personal lives. We need to learn to faithfully plant things today that we hope future generations will reap 50 years from now or 60 or 100 years from now. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the righteous man is the one who lives for the next generation. How much of our thought about Christian ministry and spiritual maturity is asking the question, what kind of world would our grandkids inherit? So we plant seeds of love, even if it's not flashy or shiny. We plant seeds of faith. We plant forgiveness. It's hard to forgive today, but bitterness bears bitter fruit for generations. Forgiveness brings life for generations. We plant prayer. We plant gospel seeds. We share the gospel. So many people in this room, the trajectory of your family was changed for generations because somebody shared the gospel a generation or two ago. And that's what happens when we're sharing the gospel out in our community and someone comes to know Christ. 
We're not just thinking about how is their life going to be changed next week. We're trying to think about their great-great-grandchildren after we're in heaven. What is the new generational thing God is doing? We're talking about fruitfulness for a lifetime. Now, here's what we want to say. If you want to be fruitful for a lifetime, you've got to learn healthy rhythms today. So everybody say healthy rhythms. Healthy rhythms just means we're, we're having habits of life that we, throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month, throughout the year, I'm planting things today that are going to bear good fruit over the course of years and decades and generations. And to help us illustrate this, uh, we put a little thing in your bulletin. If you just turn the page in your bulletin, you're going to see a little rectangle. Looks like this. Everybody see this? This is slightly adapted from something that Pete Scazzaro calls the rule of life. Lots of people call it the rule of life, but this is adapted from one of his handouts. If you want to look it up, you could look up emotionally healthy discipleship. Just type that into Google. Type in rule of life. But you don't need to know all that. Here's, here's what I want you to get for today. That circle in the middle says abide in God's love. And it's trying to cast a vision for you that all of your life, not just part of your life, is about resting in the love of God. So the key text here would be something like John 15, 9. By the way, there's blank space on there, so you can take notes and write on that little part of your bulletin. John 15, 9, Jesus says, uh, what does he say in John 15, 9? If you abide in my love, you are truly my disciples. That's not what he says in John 15, 9. Somebody look up John 15, 9. I just blanked up here on stage. That's embarrassing when that happens. <laughs> I'm just going to stand here until somebody calls it out. There it is. Thanks, Jared. Okay, John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. We memorized that together during a sermon a few months ago. This is why scripture review is so important. Okay. Everybody say John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now we got it again. Okay. Jesus is saying the eternal, unbreakable love that characterized God's life as the Holy Trinity has now been poured out for us. Jesus loves us in that way. When Jesus died for us on the cross, bearing our guilt and sin and shame, bearing all the consequences of our worst decisions, he was demonstrating to us the love with which the Father has always loved the Son, and he was inviting us into that love so that all of life becomes... uh, the spirituality of resting in God's love, of remembering God's love, of being transformed by God's love. Now, you've got these four different quadrants in your bulletin, on your handout. And each of those is just talk, trying to summarize different spheres of life. And what I want to do right now is think for a few minutes about what does it look like to have healthy rhythms this week, this month, this year, in each of those different spheres of life that are going to produce fruit over a period of time, because often we get out of balance. We put a lot of attention on one of these quadrants while neglecting the others. And here's a lie that we tend to say over and over that I think we should just name it right now. How many times have you said or heard other people say, hey, I'm in a busy season right now. I'm neglecting these important things, but it's a busy season. But later, and then you fill in the blank. Well, guess what? The next season turns out to be busy too, doesn't it? So here's the thing. I want all of us to take this seriously as a spiritual invitation. 
You are free in Christ to decide what you want to do with your time and say, I'm going to quit saying next season and I'm just going to do the work of learning how to live this week in such a way that if I did it every week, I would bear good spiritual fruit in 30 years. Okay? I want to live this month in such a way that if I did it every month, it would bear good spiritual fruit over the course of a lifetime. Now, at the top, you have work and rest. Those two go together. Everybody say work and rest. When you think about work, you can think about the kind of work that people do at their jobs where they may punch a clock, clock in, clock out. They may get a paycheck. That's work. So think about that kind of work. But also think about the work you do at home. Folding laundry, mowing the lawn. That's work. And you could think about ministry work. A lot of us are engaged and, and frankly, we all should be engaged in actively going out into our community, serving, sharing the gospel, doing ministry work. So work just means important things that we do. We invest time and energy into um, in order to bring God's life into the world. We're uh, stewarding the resources God has given it, the intellect, uh, given us, the intellectual resources, the spiritual gifts, the time, the energy, the money. We're taking what we've got and we're investing time and in doing things that bring order and peace and life into the world. Okay, so it's our job. It's our housework. It's our ministry work. And it's important. There's lots of scriptures about the importance of work. For example, Colossians 3, 23 through 24 says this. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, what's beautiful here is Paul is not just saying the ministry work can be done unto the Lord as worship. He's saying all of that work. All of that work. So you can worship God by sweeping the floor in your house with faith. You can worship God by having a great attitude at your job. Whatever your work you do, Paul says, do it with energy, do it with diligence, do it with wisdom, do it with zeal. Work hard for Jesus, not for men. That's the spirituality of work. We can abide in God's love at work, but we need to hold this in a healthy rhythm with rest. Everybody say rest. There are many, many scriptures that we could look to about rest. The idea of rest is we're not working. Instead, we're slowing down to be with God, to enjoy God, and to enjoy God's good creation, especially the people he's put in our life. We're slowing down. We're not doing something because it needs to be done. That's work. Work is good. Work is sacred. We reflect the image of God. By doing creative work, like our creator worked. But remember Genesis 1. After our creator worked, then he did what? Rest. He rested. And that idea of Sabbath is an idea I want us to think about today. Actually, if you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, you'll notice it says everything God made was good. But there's only one thing that was called holy. And that was Sabbath. That was rest. And I want you to think about what the experience of Sabbath would have been like for the children of Israel when they had been enslaved for generations and their boss was an oppressive pharaoh, such that if you asked for a day off, he said, you know what, tomorrow bring more bricks and you got to get your own straw. That was their boss. And now all of a sudden God says, I'm your boss, not pharaoh. One day a week, do not work. Just rest. Enjoy me. Enjoy my creation and trust me to provide. What would that have felt like? They didn't have a category for Sabbath. It was a good, beautiful, liberating gift, but they didn't know how to receive it. Which is why if you read through the Exodus, they kept struggling with this concept of the Sabbath. But the one verse I want to talk to you about is a verse that Jesus says. This is Mark chapter 2, verse 27, 28. 
says, And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, I, Jesus, am Lord of the Sabbath. I'm king of the Sabbath. I'm boss of the Sabbath. And he's telling us its purpose. Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Which, the last part of that verse means we don't need to be legalistic about Sabbath. Okay? If you're struggling with guilty feelings of, I want to play baseball, but I shouldn't play baseball on my day off because that's like work or whatever, don't feel guilty. Okay? Liberation here. Freedom. Everybody say freedom. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. But the first part of this verse is saying, Sabbath was made for man. It's a gift. It's a gift. Now, Christians have had different convictions over the years about when and how you should celebrate Sabbath and what to do about it. My personal opinion is that there's a ton of freedom about this in the New Testament. We don't need to be legalistic. I don't want to fight with you about your convictions about Sabbath. Whatever your convictions are, are probably fine with me. But here's the thing I do want you to hear. The, the principle of Sabbath is woven into the fabric of creation back in Genesis. So this is a good gift that God has given us. And if we receive it well, we flourish. And if we don't receive it well, it, it tends to work against the grain of how God has made us. And we tend to do the opposite of flourishing. We tend to struggle. We tend to face a lot of difficulty. Sa- Sabbath, then is a reminder that we are God's children, okay? The, part of the reason why so many of us struggle with rest is because rest gets to the heart of the deep questions, who is God and who am I? The children of Israel struggled to practice Sabbath because they had a hard time of thinking of God as something other than a bigger Pharaoh. And they had a hard time not being enslaved in their minds, even when they were set free by God. Pharaoh got in their heads. And so the, the principle of Sabbath is calling us back. It's calling you today. Hear this as a word from the Lord. Not because I'm saying it because the Bible teaches us. The principle of Sabbath is calling us to this truth. God is not an angry ta- taskmaster. He's a loving father. And you are not God's sponge out of whom he's trying to squeeze maximum productivity You are God's beloved child. You're his beloved child. Now, as we think about having healthy rhythms of work and rest, I'm sure there's some people in this room who really need to learn about work, especially those who are younger, need to learn how to work hard, how to work with joy, how to work with diligence, how to work with wisdom. There's people that aren't engaged in ministry work. And out of obedience to Jesus, you need to get engaged in ministry work. I'm sure there's some people in here that that's the main word you need to hear. My experience suggests to me that probably for most of us in here, Actually learning how to rest is the first thing to work on. And I I encourage you as a spiritual discipline just to build in a 24-hour period every single week of your life that you don't do any work. 24-hour period. I'll tell you a little bit in a minute about how my family does this. But a 24-hour period in which you're just together with your people, enjoying God and enjoying God's creation and not doing anything else. Now, let me identify here part of the spiritual challenge of this task. A lot of us don't want to do it. And when we do it, we start to feel anxious. And the experience of ceasing from our labors to work actually starts, a lot of unhappy emotions start bubbling up inside of us. We're afraid. We're afraid. 
What do I mean? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You start to feel a little anxious. You start to feel a little restless. What's the name for that? There's several things we could call that. We could call it the yawning abyss at the center of our souls. We, we, could, we could call it the nagging fear that our life is meaningless, that gnaws at the edges of our mind like rats trying to get into our pantry and eat up all of our graham crackers. Even the inner sanctum in our house is not safe. Maybe that's what we're feeling. Maybe what we're experiencing is the fear that God will abandon us, that God will not take care of us. Maybe it's the haunting specter of death. Y'all didn't want to go that deep, did you? That's the same reason you don't rest once a week. It, it creates anxiety. So many of the spiritual masters of the Christian tradition have said, if you'll be still, you're forced to be confronted with all the lies you believed about yourself and about God. You're often confronted with your own boredom, but your boredom is really a manifestation of the fear that your life is meaningless. And they say, don't run from that. That yawning abyss at the center of your soul that I'm talking about, that existential angst, if you will be still and deal with that, what you find is a God of love who will meet you there. And learning to rest in the presence of God, learning that if I stop laboring, the world does not stop spinning. If I cease from my work, my family still eats the next day and the next week. Learning that experience then teaches you also when you work to not work out of frantic anxiety and insecurity, but to work from a place of rest in God's love. Do you hear that? So we're talking about learning healthy rhythms of work and rest. The bottom two categories are also really important. One of them we call intentional spiritual ex- exercises. You could call it spiritual rhythms. You could call it spiritual habits. You could call it spiritual disciplines, whatever you want to call it. But these are moments of our lives that reconnect us and recenter us on God. These are moments like when we stop to be alone with God and read his word. You can think about Psalm 119, 15 says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. These are moments where we stop to be intentional to pray. Think about all the times in the Gospels where there was so much fruitful ministry work to be done, but it says Jesus withdrew to a desolate place to pray. I often think of Daniel in Daniel chapter 6 when Darius made the commandment that you can't pray to anybody but Darius. Then here's what we read, Daniel chapter 6 verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. I love that passage for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's a powerful passage about nonviolent civil disobedience. But what we're seeing here is Daniel knew how to respond to oppressive power. Daniel knew how to behave in the day of evil because Daniel already had a rhythm of life where he prayed three times a day every day. He had a rhythm of life where he knew how to pray. Or we could think about the more corporate communal aspects of our spiritual discipline. For example, you could write down Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So our spiritual rhythms of meditating on the word of God, of prayer, of corporate worship and fellowship, they are habits that help us to recenter in God's love. Now, I want to make something very clear. Doing these spiritual disciplines does not make God love you. Did you hear that? 
Doing these spiritual disciplines does not make God love you. Maybe we should say it thrice. Doing these spiritual disciplines does not make God love you. If you read your Bible today or yesterday, God loved you. But if you didn't read your Bible yesterday, God loved you. Amen? They do not make God love you. What they do is remind you that God loves you. God doesn't need your spiritual disciplines. You need your spiritual disciplines. Because of various unhealthy aspects of the human heart, some of us struggle to think about discipline without becoming very legalistic. It's important for me to do this, so I've got to do it so I feel like God loves me. But listen, that's not what it's about here. Think about it like this. Eating healthy and sleeping, having healthy sleep habits do not cause God to love you. And if you work on eating healthy and having healthy sleeping habits, probably most of the time you don't think I'm being legalistic. What you're doing is recognizing I need healthy food and I need healthy sleep. Right. And what, I, what we're trying to say now is that's true. And you need the word of God more than you need food. You need prayer more than you need healthy sleep habits. You need Christian community more than you need those other physical things. So the point here is we're building healthy rhythms into our life, not to make God love us, but because we desperately need to remind ourselves and to be still and to learn to hear from the Lord so that we can maintain that dynamic relationship with God in the rest of life. It's not that those little moments of spiritual disciplines are spiritual and everything else is unspiritual. Those are the moments that reconnect us so we can practice the spirituality of everyday life and the sacredness of everything. Now, the last quadrant here is the quadrant of core relationships. The clearest mark that we are disciples of Jesus is the love that we have for one another. How well do we love people? Jesus says, love your enemies. He says, love your neighbors. He says, love your co-workers. New Testament teaches us to love lost people by sharing the gospel. But for all of us, the discipline of learning to love starts with the people right around us. Those closest to us. So think about how many scriptures about family life talk about loving your wife or husband, loving your children, honoring your parents. Love starts right at home. It starts with our families. It starts with our core friendships, learning to love one another. There's lots of positive verses. There's also warning verses like 1 Timothy 5, 8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Listen, God wants you to sacrifice for the kingdom of God, but he does not want you to sacrifice your family for the kingdom of God. God wants you to learn to abide in his love in a way that teaches you to love deeply and to be present with the people he's placed around you. Now, I specifically said core relationships because this is just as true if you're a kid or if you're an adult, if you're married, if you're single, if you have kids, if you don't have kids. Learning to prioritize those core friendships. How you prioritize core relationships will vary based on many factors about your life. What's your job? What's your life stage? Single or married? All those different things. Let me just say to you a few things about what it looks like in our family. These are all interconnected. Work and rest, spiritual exercises, and core relationships are all interconnected. And for us, it, we, we can't just make a plan for how we're going to keep all those in balance and do it for the rest of our lives because life is dynamic. It changes. Have you noticed that if you make a plan, even if it works a few months later, it doesn't work anymore? So we have to reset. So every few months in my family, we come back to this diagram that's in your bulletin and we use it as a grid 
And we say, what do we want to put into each of those quadrants to make sure we're sowing the things this month that will allow us to reap good fruit decades from now? And then after we put it in there, we tell our schedule how to fit all those things. We don't figure out, can I fit it into my schedule? We reset the schedule and make sure all those things can fit in there every single time. If that means I need to make an adjustment to a major life commitment, a ministry commitment, a job commitment, a career change, then I'm prepared to do it because ask yourself the question, what would be better to not make that change that I fear and then to let my family or my health suffer or to go ahead and make that change and to bear spiritual fruit over the course of a lifetime? It's an easy question, isn't it? So there's significant adjustment I need to be willing to make if I'm ready to do this. For us, for our family, there are spiritual disciplines that involve, you know, waking up in the morning and reading the Bible and praying and and all those kinds of things. But I want to focus on a a few other commitments that we've made. And this is not legalistic. I'm not saying you've got to do it like what we did. I'm just trying to give you an example. So we've tried to fight for Sabbath. For us, because we're often busily doing ministry work on Sundays, we just make it Saturday. And we have a whole thing that we do on Friday night to enter into it. It's like a ritual. We sit down and have dinner and we light a candle. And I say the light of Christ. And they all, all the kids say, is our peace. And I say Shabbat Shalom. And they say Shabbat Shalom. And it's fun. Don't judge us. It's fun. Okay. So we have this whole thing that we do every Friday. But then what do we do? It's not some weird religious thing the whole time. Usually we watch a movie after that. We eat a big meal and watch a movie. And then theoretically we'd sleep in. But that's never happened for years. So we don't sleep in. Instead we get up and we play and... We read books and we go to the park and we have fun together for a day and we, we don't do ministry stuff on that day. And we don't do work stuff on that day. It's just a time to enjoy God and to enjoy one another. And it's a lot of fun and it's refreshing for us. But even if it's not refreshing, it's a discipline. It's a discipline that stays us grounded in our core relationships and in remembering who God is and who we are. Next thing for our family, we've just found that we have to guard evenings. Ministry vocation is a vocation where evenings can get gobbled up quickly with board meetings and speaking engagements and stuff. And so I've just said as a minimum that I want to be home to have family dinner with my kids and to tuck with my whole family and to tuck in my kids at a minimum of four nights every week. Now, a lot of weeks I can do that more than that. But I'm not I'm going to say no. So I say no to lots of invitations and opportunities, even if they're great opportunities. This is just a discernment um, filter for me. I'm going to be home with my family, having family dinner, doing tuckins and stuff at minimum four nights a week, which means at minimum most nights. Right. Um, date nights. Candace and I, that has gotten a lot harder as we have continued to have many children. Um, but we still regularly will have date nights where we're just going to have fun together. And, and work on our marriage. We have dad time and mom time. We go through a rhythm. Right now, we're going through mom time. So each kid, we got six kids, and they're going and doing something special one-on-one with mom. It's their turn. And then it's going to be daddy-daughter date time or man time. We call it daddy-daughter date or man time. Depends on which gender of kid. You see what I'm saying here? But one-on-one time with mom and dad, and we go do something fun. And we're always rotating through that because we want to have that one-on-one time together. We've made it a part of our rhythm that we're going to do ministry together as a family. Part of the reason that I have practiced evangelism throughout my whole life is that first my parents and then my older brother practiced it and took me with them. So as a family, I I learned that and then just kept doing it into my adult life. And so as our family, often it's very inconvenient when you have young children, you got school the next day and everything. But we all go out to Oak Creek Apartments to teach a Bible study and 
do those things every week because we want our kids growing up having that experience. And Candace and I have learned that core relationships is not just family, it's also friendships. But the older you are and the more kids you have and the busier you get, the harder it is to do the work of maintaining deep, healthy friendships. So we support each other having friend time where she'll send me out to do things with a few key guy friends and I'll send her out to do things with a few key woman friends, etc., etc. Now, I'm just describing this to you to try and spark imagination, but here's what I would encourage you to do. I'm almost done. I'm about to sit down. We can sing another song and go eat lunch. But I'm encouraging you to take this handout and make it a time of serious prayer this week and serious consideration. This is not a schedule. This is just you saying what would be long in each of these four quadrants. If I was going to be sowing this month things that will allow me to reap the kind of spiritual health and fruitfulness and maturity I want 20, 30, 50, 60 years from now. And recognize that if you're going to then actualize that and turn it into a schedule, it's probably going to involve change and sacrifice for, for many of the people in this room. But you're going to ask the Lord to show you what's really important and to, and to give you grace to make whatever changes you need to make. Now, I want to end where we began. Everybody take a deep breath. Breathe in. Everybody say, God loves me. I have found, having walked through this process with many people that I'm mentoring, that though it should feel like freedom, often to us it feels very anxiety-causing. Uh, and sometimes when I send people as married couples to go work on this rhythm, then they come back reporting tears, anxiety, and conflict, okay? Um, because it involves difficult conversations, difficult changes, um, having to decide priorities. It can be challenging. But here's what I want you to say. Your salvation does not depend on getting this right. Okay? God's love for you does not depend on you figuring this out. God loves you regardless, and if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you're secure in Him. Nothing can separate you from your love. But I also want to say, you are free in Christ to reject the voice of Pharaoh in your head that says, if you don't, Keep cranking out all the productivity that's robbing you of the rest and the spiritual disciplines and the core relationships. Um, it's not going to be okay. You're free from that voice of Pharaoh. In Christ, you're free to just go ahead and have healthy habits. And not fear that you won't be provided for. Not fear that you won't be successful. Just to trust in the Lord. It's a radical act of discipleship. To say, I'm going to embrace the rhythms of the kingdom of God, even if those are contrary to the rhythms and values of the surrounding culture. And if we're going to live that way, we've got to be people that believe the gospel, which means, again, your salvation doesn't depend on getting this right. God's love for you doesn't. God carried you from the womb, and he's going to carry you to your old age. Right. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite you to take a moment of silent prayer, to look at that rule of life thing in your bulletin, and right now to ask the Holy Spirit, which of these quadrants do I need to make some changes in? Where do I need to do some work so that I as an individual and we as a community can have healthy rhythms so that we're not just having an exciting time this summer of ministry, but we're having lives of fruitfulness over the course of decades. So I'm just going to give you about a silent minute here to start that work of prayer, and then I'm going to say a prayer for you.
Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you that your love does not depend on anything that we do. Thank you for the cross of Jesus, which preaches to us day after day that you love us deeper than we could imagine. It's not dependent on our performance. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who's present in the room right now. And as, as we worship you, I just want to claim 2 Corinthians 3.17 in this room where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. And Lord, I just really know that the voice of Pharaoh is really powerful in our culture. That we feel like our identity and our self-worth and the meaning of our lives is going to depend on what we produce. And so I pray that we would listen to the Spirit of God not that voice of Pharaoh, and that we would know that our wealth and identity and security are a gift of God through Jesus Christ. I pray also that there would be no condemnation, even if your Holy Spirit's bringing conviction right now of some areas that there needs to be change, that it wouldn't be condemnation. It wouldn't sound like you're a failure and you're neglecting your family or your priority. It would, it would sound like you're my child and I'm calling you to freedom. So, Lord, would you just give us grace in the moment? I pray that this sermon wouldn't just be about this sermon or this worship service wouldn't be about this worship service, but that you would be reorganizing things and shaking things loose in our lives and in our families now that will help us as a community to bear good fruit a long time from now. We commit it to you. ask for your grace along the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.